On April 10th, 1912, the Titanic took off on its maiden voyage from Southampton, England to New York City. At approximately 11.40 p.m. on April 14th, just four days into the trip, the Titanic hit an iceberg. At 2.20 a.m. on the 15th, the ship had sunk into the Atlantic Ocean. Only an estimated 705 passengers of the 2,200 made it out alive, making it one of the deadliest commercial peacetime disasters in modern history. On the evening of April 14th, the Titanic's wireless operators received several messages from nearby ships, warning them of icebergs ahead. Uh, one message came from the SS Masaba. It read, To the Titanic, heavy pack ice and a great number of large icebergs ahead. And it included the coordinates of the exact location of that fatal iceberg. But the message was ignored. Another operator from the Californian attempted to warn of the iceberg ahead, but Jack Phillips, the Titanic operator, was focused on getting passengers' messages out. His reply to the Californian, shut up, shut up, I am busy. No one imagined that such a massive, strong ship like the Titanic, could be sunk. Warning messages were sent in time to avert the fatal blow, but they were ignored. What happened to the Titanic in 1912 also happened to the Israelites in 722 B.C. With all the success and the prosperity that Israel had enjoyed for, for so many years, no one thought it could sink. It did, but not without warning. More than 150 years earlier, God had raised up messengers to warn Israel of the upcoming iceberg that was going to destroy them if they continued in the direction that they were heading. If you read the story this week, and I hope you did, you were introduced to a few of these messengers. Uh, they're called prophets. Right? Guys like Amos and Hosea, who came with a specific message from God to the people to turn their hearts back to him. Uh, people like uh, Elisha and Elijah, who were sent with powerful signs and miraculous wonders to get the people's attention. Did they get yours? The people were sent and people are still sent. God is still trying to get his messages across to us today. But in order to understand his message, we're going to have to understand uh, kind of what's going on in, in our text today. What's the context around this episode between Elijah and the prophets of Baal? So let me back up and give you just a little bit of background. Our story today that we heard, that longer reading from Kings, it, it takes place when uh, the northern kingdom of Israel had split off from the southern kingdom of Judah, right? We heard that last week from Pastor Aaron. So the kingdoms are split, and now you have a king in the north and a king in the south. The south is known as Judah. The north is now known as Israel. And none of these kings, well, very few of them anyway, did what was right in the eyes of God. 
Instead, most of them were pretty off. And our king today, King Ahab, he was especially despicable. He and his wife, Queen Jezebel of the Sidonians, they had a quest to make Israel a pluralistic nation, to worship all kinds of gods. And and so they were intentionally uh, bringing these idols in, this this worship of false gods through, through Israel, and especially the worship of Baal. He's the storm god of the Canaanites and of of Tyre and of Sidon, where Jezebel is from. Uh, Baal is this god who's pictured with a club in one hand to make the thunder, and a spear in the other that kind of looks like a lightning bolt. So Baal was seen as this kind of weather god in control of, of the elements. But God wanted to show that this Baal was no competition. And so he had actually sent a drought on Israel for three and a half years, but nothing that a storm god shouldn't be able to fix, right? So there's been a drought in the land of Israel, and that's why when King Ahab shows up, he's so ticked off, right? And he says, is that you, you troubler of Israel? But Elijah, he locates the trouble and the source of the trouble in a different place, right? I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. The problem was that Ahab had forgotten God and he was busy chasing after all these other Baals, right? And this is the same indictment that's sent against the people just a few verses later. How long will you go on limping between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. There's only one right answer. There's only one God who can actually provide what the people need. They can't hold on to both gods. But the people have been busy chasing after these Baals. Now, why does the Bible sometimes call him Baal and other time use the plural, Baals, right? That's kind of weird when you read that. In Hebrew, that word Baal is kind of a generic term. Uh, it means spiritual Lord, right? So there is, uh, you know, the one they call the Baal. He's, he's just a rain Baal, right? He's a storm Baal. But there's a whole bunch of other Baals, too. There's a, you know, there's a wisdom Baal. Uh, there's a beauty Baal. There's a party Baal. I mean, these guys worship everything, right? I mean, everything that is created could be a Baal, you know, in the ancient worldview. And you and I, we might be tempted to say something like, yeah, us primitive ancient people, right? Worshiping all these Baals. I mean, how, how silly, how foolish of them. But let me tell you something. These ancient people actually have a little bit of a leg up on us because they recognize something that we often miss. These ancient people knew that, that everybody worships something, that everybody is under some kind of spiritual power, that, that everything has the potential to be a Baal, right? Do you realize that? 
We're all under the spiritual power of something. The question is, what? So, for example, uh, on TV, right, like half the commercials you see probably, or, or at the uh, checkout counter at the grocery store, right, you are barraged with picture after picture and image after image of beautiful, thin women. I mean, just barraged over and over again. Now, the pagans understood, right? What are, are, those, what are those pictures? They're not just there giving you information. There's a spiritual power to them. There's a spiritual authority about them. And they can pass into your soul and exercise that power over you. When you take anything that is created and you make it to be that, that ultimate thing, the thing that really makes you happy, or the thing that makes you and gives you significance, it becomes a bale, and you get into to bale worship. But we're so modern, and we're so secular that, you know, we just don't, we don't really think that way. We don't buy it. We don't believe it. But the pagans at least understood that. And that's why they had a temple for virtually anything, right? And everything. But you see, if you're a, if you're a young girl, what happens if those images pass into your soul? What can that do to you? I mean, at your worst, you can develop uh, an eating disorder, right? Because those images, they say, this, this is power. You need to look like this, and then you will be desired. Then you will be loved. And maybe that's dramatic, right? I mean, eating disorders aren't that common. But at the very least, if it passes in, men will rule your life. And you'll need a, a man to tell you that you're desirable, that you're beautiful in order to feel accepted and valuable. That you're enough. But it's not just women, is it? And what happens if these images pass into the soul of a man? Well, then what? Well, then you say, oh, that's the kind of women that I want. Or that's the kind of women that, that I need. And uh, there's very few women like that, by the way. Uh, most women, most unairbrushed women, don't look like that. And that's the vast majority of people that I know, right, in this world. But if that passes into your soul, if that becomes a bale, then you're no longer attracted to real women. And you get hooked on pornography. You've got to have those kinds of women. Everyone else is too plain or too tall or too big or too something. See how these things exercise a power over us? The Romans and the Greeks and the ancients, they, they knew this. They were on to something, and they, they gave it a name, right? They called it Aphrodite. They understood that these were bales and had power. And that's just one example. Remember, anything that's created can become a bale. Anything, whether it's a person or a career 
uh, or even a, a snowmobile, right? I mean, anything that tells you, I, I have to have this, you need me. And then everything will be well, everything will be right, you'll have finally enough to say it's enough. But God wants to show us that these bales are no competition. And so the competition ensues. Elijah has the people build two different altar spaces, complete with sacrifices to be burned by whichever Baal, whichever God, is the real God. And the pagans are up first, and they, they take a bowl, and they prepare it, and they get it all set up on the wood, and, and then they dance. They dance. The text actually said they limped around the altar, right? That's kind of a jest. That's a joke that the biblical authors are writing in there, uh, talking about what the, what the pagans are doing. But they dance, and this is, this is a performance. This is something that's very practiced and has to be done just right so that the gods will be appeased, so that they'll give them what they're asking for. This is how Baal worship works. They're performing they have to appease their God, and so they call out again and again, and, and they're dancing, and they're raving, and you see how dire it gets, right? Uh, they cried out aloud, and they cut themselves until the blood gushed out upon them. They go to any length to get their God's attention. They go to the most extreme degree. And see, that's the mark of Baal worship. How do you know that you're worshiping a Baal? Baals aren't just in the Old Testament, they're today. How do we know? How do I know if I'm, if I'm worshiping a Baal? You dance. You perform. You have to appease whatever it is in order to, to, to get its attention, in order to, to have it so that this thing will, will hear your prayers so that you can earn it. You can't talk to it as a friend you have to perform, and you have to do it just right so that you can have it. But those gods don't ultimately deliver. They raved on until the time of the offering, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And you know, the scary thing is we can actually make the mistake of doing this to the real God. We call it works righteousness. It's when you think you can get God on your side if you just appease Him enough. If you just do enough of the right things, then maybe God will hear me. Then maybe He'll answer that prayer that I've been longing for Him to answer. Then maybe things will finally go my way. If I can just get God on my side. And we dance. We don't trust, but we dance. And not like David in celebration. You can dance to be acceptable to God. But Elijah shows us a drastic difference in how the true God operates. Look at Elijah. He doesn't rave. He doesn't dance. What does he do? He repairs the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. He goes to worship. 
It recalls the identity of the people, uh, building the altar with 12 stones, one for each of those tribes of Jacob, the tribes to whom God said, Israel shall be your name. He recalls their identity. And then he has the people pour gallons upon gallons of water on the sacrifice and on the altar. And remember, this is happening during a drought, right? These guys don't have a lot of water. So what's what's Elijah doing? Well, it's like he's saying, God, I'm putting everything on you. It's not my performance that's going to win the day. It's not my performance that's going to get your attention. This is your performance your power, your activity. Our salvation is in your hands. And did you notice that he had him do it three times, right? One bucket of water for every tribe of Israel. It's like Elijah is saying, Lord, we know that we have wandered. We haven't followed you with our whole hearts. We've, we've dampened the fire of your love. We've doused your spirit. But you are God. Show us what only you can do. And God sends a lightning bolt. God sends a lightning bolt. Not Baal, not the storm God, but Yahweh. He sends this fire down from heaven, and it must have shocked everybody that was there, these Israelites who are watching this unfold. Because the last time that they were on a mountain that was steaming from smoke, they had some concerns, right? They were afraid legitimately to be in the presence of God because God might as well have just smote them. And why not now, right? These these people have wandered. They haven't followed God. Why wouldn't God send this fiery wrath onto them? What does the fire strike? strikes what's on here, strikes the sacrifice. The sacrifice takes on God's fiery wrath so that the people can know that Yahweh is the true God in Israel, that he might turn their hearts back. And you know who that sacrifice is pointing to, right? The one whom people thought was Elijah the one who had raised the dead like Elijah, the one who who called down fire, but not on the people who had wandered, who called down fire upon himself so that we might be restored to our true Father, our true God. Jesus cried aloud and his blood gushed out so that you and I would stop chasing after all of these other Baals that you and I could actually know the fire of God's love in our lives. Did not our hearts burn within us? Jesus took the fire of God's wrath for you so that you might know the fire of God's love. That instead of, of chasing other gods, you might hear the voice of God say to you, you are enough. You are enough. You're beautiful because you are mine. 
And that's something that can never be taken from you. That's something you don't have to earn. You don't have to impress me with. I love you already. Jesus took the fire on himself so that we could have the fire of God's love in our hearts. Jesus took the fire on himself so that we could dance like Marcus was talking about and not to appease or to impress, but so we could actually dance out of celebration for what God has already done, for what God has already given you and what he will give you when he returns. Do you hear him? Are his messages getting through to you? Do you hear and see what what Jesus is trying to communicate to you out of his great love for you? What are the bales that are pulling your attention away? Don't be like the operator of the Titanic. Don't say, not now, not now, I'm busy. Look to the Son and hear the word of the Father and know that the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Amen.